Well, we're going through the book of Luke so that we can see who Jesus really is. Listen to what he actually says and watch what he does and does not do. And we've made it all the way to chapter 18 so far where Luke gives us two parables of Jesus. But today, you're going to see an encounter with a real person. And it is a sobering one. Because this encounter shows us just how close you can come to trusting in Jesus. And how many things you can actually get right and still walk away lost and on your way to hell. Go to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, and you follow along as I begin reading in verse 18. Luke 18, 18. And a ruler asked him. Now, what, what we're going to do today is I'm going to pull together three gospels. This account was actually recorded by Mark, Matthew, and Luke. When you pull it all together, you get a, a bigger picture. The other gospels tell us he was a rich, young ruler. He's got all that going on for him. Rich, young ruler. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Don't make a mistake here. Some people have been confused by this. Jesus is not saying, I'm not God. Jesus is actually pushing him and poking him already to realize You've come to me thinking I'm just a teacher and that I'm a good teacher. Don't call anyone but God good. I am actually God. He's pushing him to step it up. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my Youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, there's a crowd standing there listening to this. So he says to the crowd now, not just this man, says, oh, Jesus, seeing how sad he was, says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Then those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Here's what you need to understand. Culturally, not like today, we tend to think, yeah, it's really hard for people who are rich to be saved because they're so obnoxious and so busy being rich. That's what we think. In that day, they actually had a theology that said, if you are rich, you've been blessed by God. You're one of his favorites. You've got a leg up and you're more likely to be on your way to the kingdom than anybody else. That was their thinking. So that's why they're like, oh, my word, if you're saying that, then who in the world can be saved? Verse 27. But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with 
God. And Peter said, see, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that this passage begins and ends with a reference to eternal life. Look at it again. Verse 18. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 30. Eternal life. So everything in between this conversation that we're getting is all about eternal life. Who has it and who doesn't? Who has it and who doesn't? How do you get it? How do you get it? Well, the first thing that stands out in our passage, and it is a sobering, scary thing, is number one, you could get a lot of really important things right and still end up wrong. Do you know that? You get a lot of really important things right and still end up wrong. Just look at this rich young ruler and consider how far ahead he is than most people that we're trying to talk to today. I hope, like me, you're trying to have conversations with people about the gospel, about Jesus, about heaven, hell, about things that matter most. And what I keep running into is, okay, God is with us. They don't even believe in God. They say, well, what if I don't believe the Bible is the word of God? What if I don't think there's an afterlife? It's fine. I'm still going to share the gospel with you. But notice this guy. He's way ahead of the people so often we're trying to talk to. You don't have to convince him that God exists. He believes that. Check. You don't have to convince him that the scripture should be his authority and where he should be looking for answers. He believes that. Check. You don't have to convince him that there's an afterlife and a judgment coming. Check. He believes that and he wants to be ready. You don't have to convince him that there's a heaven and a future blessing. He believes it and he wants to know how he can be a part of it. Check, 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 check. You can have a lot in place. This guy's got a lot in place and still not have eternal life. Oh, but there's more. There are even more reasons to have hope for this guy. You know, some of us, if we had met him at the gym or in the neighborhood or on a plane or whatever, we'd like, oh my goodness, he's already, he's already almost there. Just bow your head and pray the prayer. Pray after me. Oh dear God, I know I'm a sinner. We would have just rushed him to the altar. And you see, Jesus doesn't do that. This guy's got a lot already in place that gives you great hope for him. Look at letter letter A. Show you what I'm talking about. He knew that he was missing something. Isn't that half the battle today? It's hard to talk to someone who doesn't think they're missing anything. And every now and then I run into them. But, But in the mercy of God and providence, it's amazing how often I'm seated next to someone who just got tragic life news about a health issue or a kid issue or a job issue, and they are so ready. But every now and then I sit next to someone who just says, I'm blissfully happy, I'm blissfully happy, life is great, people are getting better and better and better. Like, what universe are you living in? But they don't think we're missing anything. They're not missing anything. So often that's the battle because... People typically have to, this was a young guy on his way to celebrate a birthday party with friends in New York City and just, life's great. I still shared the gospel anyway. Because often you have to live life long enough to begin to realize you're missing something. Because you realize what keeps most people going is the pursuit of those things our world says is it. 
I don't have it, but I believe it will do it for me. So that keeps me going. I'm fine. I'm working on getting that it, whatever it is. If it's money, fame, career, image, it's the people who have it that begin to say, I'm missing something. I thought that would... Notice, he's young, and he already is extremely wealthy, as well as has a position of power and influence. The word being used for him, ruler, is arche. That was a word that indicated someone who ruled in the synagogue. That was one of the most respective, influential, looked-up-to positions you would seek after. He's got power and position and wealth. That's why he already knows, I'm missing something. I'm missing something. He's way ahead of some people. Consider my last time that I preached in, in, in chapter 18 with the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. How different is that? Did the tax collector think he's missing anything? Oh, no, he's in the middle of telling God how great he is and looking around and saying, so glad I'm not like him. The tax, I mean, the Pharisee thought, I'm great, and I'm here to tell other people how they can do the same. This guy is way ahead of the Pharisee and knows I'm missing something. I'm missing something. I am missing something. Because it doesn't matter, listen to me, if you haven't found it out yet, you will. If you keep having birthdays, it doesn't matter where you are or what you have. When you don't have Jesus, you will eventually discover I'm missing something. And it's actually not something you're missing. It's someone. A relation, you were created in the image of God for a relationship with your creator, Father God, through his son, Jesus. And when you don't have that position, power, kids, grandkids, wealth, Travel, pleasure, will not fill that void. This guy already knows he's missing something. He was moral, religious, devout, a respected leader, rich, influential. But there's a hole in his life. It's like, I'm missing something. And that's because religion can't give you what he came looking for. He's looking for a relationship with God through Jesus that would infuse his life at the core with purpose and meaning and joy and peace and assurance of who am I and where am I going? Who am I and where am I going? How does this world fit? How does it matter? Is there something that holds this all together? Is there something outside of right here, right now? Because I have this longing and this screaming inside of me that there has to be. You have that because you're a human being created in the image of God. So until you have that relationship with God through Jesus, you'll have this sense. That sense gets quieted by the noise of the world and it gets numbed by the pleasures of the world. But there'll be seasons where it bubbles up and you're like, it's bubbled up for him. I don't have, you say, how do you know he's looking for that, Brad? Well, I know he's looking for that because that's the very definition of eternal life. If you want to know what eternal life is, he said, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus gives us a definition of eternal life. In John 17, 3, he's praying a high priestly prayer. He's actually talking to his father and he says, couldn't be more clear. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing God 
through his son Jesus Christ is the very essence of eternal life. That's what, that's what distinguishes Christianity from all other world religions. Every other religion is trying to help you do something to earn God's favor, achieve, get right, do enough. And Christianity is all about a relationship with your creator God through his son Jesus Christ, radically different. That's eternal life. That they may know you, you know God through his son Jesus Christ. See, this man knew all about God. Religion could do that for you. He knew all about God. He probably could have wowed you with his knowledge of God from the Old Testament. He knew all about God, but did not know God personally because that only happens when you're in relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. There's a huge difference between knowing about God and knowing God. That's what he's looking for. That's what he's longing for. That's what his question is about. There's a hole in his hole in his life. He's restless and disturbed and unsettled because his wealth and religion and even his morality, all that he's been trying to do has not given him the peace and the joy and the assurance that he thought it would. So he knows he's missing something. Way ahead of so many people. Already knows that he's missing something. But notice what else puts him ahead. Letter B. Woo. He is searching for it passionately, not half-heartedly. Not, not in my free time, I might give some thought to this. Now, I got to reach over and grab some stuff from Mark to show you that. You say, how do you see that, Brad? Well, because Mark gives us the account this way. And the man came running and knelt before Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So picture a wealthy, influential, highly respected, very moral man running and throwing himself in front of Jesus. There's already a crowd there. He's interrupting something. He didn't wait. Throwing himself in front of Jesus and breathlessly blurting out, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Because he's like, oh, I heard Jesus is in the area. I don't want to miss him. I've got to get there. I've got to ask this question. He's passionately seeking an answer to this question. Not, he didn't just come shuffling up in a cool, detached way and say, I know you're busy, but when you get a second, just got a question I want to run by you. Just something my friends and I have been chewing on the patio. Want to see who's right, who's wrong. No, no. And, and, and here, here to help you even more, just like in Luke 15 where the father ran and met his son before the son even got to him. Remember what I told you? Respected, influential men in that culture did not what? Servants ran. Children ran. This man doesn't care who sees him. He's not holding on to his reputation. He's desperate. And he's doing it publicly with no shame. Now imagine, you know, in that day, he knows if he's a ruler in the synagogue that the religious leaders of that day hate Jesus. They're convinced he's wrong. So he's putting himself in a very awkward position to say, I'm asking Jesus. I'm going to Jesus. I think no shame, great zeal, searching for it passionately. 
So many times, same thing. He's a, he's a head of some people who you wish would get more serious about it. They know they're missing something, but they act like, I got some life to live. I'm pursuing this. I'm getting a business started. I'm trying to find a wife or a husband. I'm going to raise some kids, and then I'll give thought to this. That's not this guy. Knows he's missing something. Searching for an answer passionately, and oh, but there's even more he gets right. Letter C. He goes to the right source. He goes to Jesus. He goes to Jesus. He's convinced, I think Jesus could give me the answer. I think Jesus would know. If I could get to Jesus and ask this question, he doesn't go to the rabbis. He doesn't go to the scribes. He probably had relationships with all of them. Not the scribes, not the rabbis, not the Pharisees. He doesn't go to the synagogue. He doesn't go to the temple. Jesus. He goes to Jesus again. What do you see today? Here's what I see. I do run into people who they know they're missing something. They've already made so much money they don't know what to do with it. They'll tell me that. I'm like, wow, that must be interesting. (laughs) Or they're facing a health crisis. A young lady I sat next to, I mean, she was beautiful, late 20s, and she's been told, you have four months to live. Again, I think it's no accident who God puts me next to. I, I rarely run into someone who doesn't know they're missing something. God has them ready just every now and then. But oh, how often I'm just like, ah, the places they're going for, they're reading all the wrong books, looking in all the wrong places, going to all the wrong people. Just, just recently, some guys, he's had a life-altering, massive, life-changing calamity. So he's open. He's thinking outside of this world now. I saw him reading a book, and, and I was in a park, and I just said, hey, what are you reading? And oh, my goodness, he was excited. So I thought he was interested in knowing more about Jesus and the gospel. So we got together again. The man wouldn't listen. The man didn't ask me a single question. All he wanted to do was convince me of this author that has a six-book series. And I'm telling you what, weird, weird, weird. The stuff people are choosing to believe is far more weird than what we are believing. You know, so don't act like, oh, everybody else is so scientific and logical. No, it's like Martians and blah, 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 blah. And like, what? And they're reading blogs. They're talking to people. And you say, oh, consider, have you examined Jesus? Have you examined the claims of Christianity? Have you read any of the Bible? Top answer? No. Consider Jesus. Consider the Bible. Consider he knows he's missing something. Check. He is not half-heartedly going about it for an answer. Check. He's going to the right source. Jesus. But, letter D, he's still asking the wrong question. It's the question that is ingrained in us. You guys, it's the question that is hardwired into you as a human being. Look at it in verse 18. What must... Say the next two words with me. I do. Say it again. I do. To inherit eternal life. The flaw, the fatal flaw in the man's question is the verb, I do. Because he is locked into an I do system. But oh, listen to me. So is every human being. We're born with a 
Tell me what to do and I'll try to do it. Tell me what to do and I'll try to do it. Tell me what the boxes are to check. Tell me what the steps are. Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me and I'll work hard to do it. He's locked into an I do system but I hope you realize that is ingrained in all of us from birth. You gotta achieve it. You gotta earn it. You gotta work for it. What must I do? He was trying to achieve eternal life and achieve a relationship with God. But Jesus has been saying over and over and over, you have to receive eternal life when you believe in Jesus by grace alone through faith alone plus nothing. Here's what I also want you to realize. I hope you've seen it. We are intelligent beings. We're way ahead of the rest of the creation, no doubt, created in the image of God. But do you realize as intelligent as we are, human beings have the capacity to have already be, be so locked into a framework of how they think that when you talk to them about something different, they, they don't even hear it. They don't hear what you're saying. Have you ever experienced that? They're not stupid. Trust me, these are not stupid people. It's like... How are you not hearing what I'm saying? I'll never forget one Easter. I was thrilled right over here. A neighbor that I've been praying for and praying for and praying for. It was like, they're here. Oh my goodness, they had a grandson who got saved in young life and he invited them. Thank you, grandson. And here they are. And I preached my little heart out with a Jesus is the only way. It's by grace. It's by faith. I know I was clear. I know I didn't say, work your way and follow me because I'm way ahead of you. And when I ended that gospel sermon of Jesus, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, plus nothing, they greeted me in the aisle and said, oh my goodness, that was wonderful. If anyone deserves to go to heaven, you do. <laughs> I'm like, what in the world? How did, how did you not hear what it, and so I pushed back and I said, oh, no, 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 no. None of us deserve to go to heaven. It's by grace. And, and they interrupted me and said, oh, yes, 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 yes. But you're way ahead of the rest of us. Do you see what's going on? It actually takes, I'm more and more, the longer I live and the more I engage people, it takes the grace of God to hear and understand the grace of God. It's so foreign. It's like you're saying, you're speaking another language because the human heart is so locked into achieve, work, earn that they can take something you said and still tweak it to be what they already thought. Oh my goodness. He's still asking the wrong question. Because he has no category for grace or unmerited favor. Because he's still focused so much on his own ability. And so, yes, let me poke another thing that sometimes you hear and maybe you say, oh, he's a seeker. Wow, it's so exciting when you get around a seeker. And I would grant you if you mean they already know they're missing something, they're passionate about finding an answer, and maybe they're even open to Jesus and Christianity. But guess what, you guys? He's seeking God on his own terms. That's the only kind of seeker that's out there. You know how often I, you know, I just did it a few weeks ago, Romans 3.10. There's none righteous. And then when you think, but what about my grandma? No, not one. Not even her. Do you know what the next verse says? So jot this down. It's not in your bulletin. 
That's Romans 3.10. There's none righteous, no, not one. Guess what Romans 3.11 says? None seek after God. You're like, what? Here's what they're seeking after you. They're seeking after affirmation of the system they already have. Tweak it, add to it, help me out, give me a booster shot, but do not blow it up. I already have a system. Don't make me start over. I'm not asking you to blow it up. I already know what I think and what I'm doing, but I know I need a little help. Does that make sense? They're seeking God on their own terms. He's seeking God on his own terms. He wants Jesus to step into his existing paradigm and just tweak it. What am I missing? I I feel like I'm missing something. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus blows it all up. And he always does. And that leads to my second point. You could give him your praise. Do you realize you could give him your praise and still hold on to your heart? You're like, what? Here's another bonus verse. Matthew 15, 8. Matthew 15, 8. It's not in your outline. That's why Jesus in Matthew 15, 8 said, you honor me with your lips, but your what? Heart is where? Far from me. What? It can happen. You can know the right things to say. You can even give him a little respect, but your heart is still your heart. I'm still holding on to my heart. I haven't given you that. I'll give you some praise with my lips. Think about how the world is more than happy to every now and then say, we appreciate, you know, how kind he was, how he fed the hungry, how there's things about him they like, and they'll say, okay, but that's not the same thing as giving him your life, your heart, the control center of your world, the worship throne room of your life. It was happening then, it's still happening today that people are willing to give him some praise and hold on to their heart. And so that's why Jesus, I want to clarify what he's doing here. He's going after the man's heart in verse 22. He's not teaching you earn your way to heaven by being a philanthropist and taking a vow of poverty. That's not what he's teaching. He's putting his finger on this man's biggest heart issue, which was his money, his stuff, that he'd built his life around, his security on. That was his scorecard. That was what gave him sense of worth and connectedness and his money, his stuff. Look at verse 22. One thing you still... Now, now Jesus is being so gracious here, right? The guy lacks a lot, starting with lying. You know, all these I've kept from my youth. Liar. Now we can add pride. What in the world? Are you so clueless? So Jesus doesn't even go with that. See, here's the, here's the beauty of Jesus. Often when you're listening to someone, don't you face this? I face it in counseling and conversations. Of everything that's being said wrong, where should I start? What's the biggest deal? What's the root deal? What's, what would make the biggest difference? Jesus doesn't struggle like we do because he's the wonderful counselor. And oh, what a handy dandy thing I don't have. He can see. What can he see? The heart. Jesus is going after the root issue and just letting some other things go. He's, he's buying into what the man's saying, and he's just saying, all right, all right. If you want to talk about the law, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess. Give it to the poor. Come, follow me. 
At first, you could be confused. You're like, Jesus is teaching works. Why is Jesus doing this? He's not. Because think about it. He doesn't do this with anybody else. Can you think of another person in the Gospels where this is what he says? Oh, give away all your stuff and all your money, and that's how you can get saved and go to heaven. He doesn't do this with anybody else. What he is doing is what he does with everybody else. He puts his finger right on the real issue. That's why, remember woman at the well in John 4? They're talking about living water. And then he says, hey, go get your husband. She's like, I don't have a husband. He said, you're right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're now living with is not your husband. Ooh, awkward. Why is Jesus not talking to her about money? Why is he talking to her about this? Because he could see she's built her world very likely around men. Around men. That's my security. That's my sense of identity. And when you do that, if you do that in this life where you build your life around your children, build your life around your spouse, it'll crush them. It'll cr- no one was designed to bear the weights of all your hope and purpose and sense of meaning So she's been through five husbands and finally thought, let's just live together. He puts his finger on men, relationships, romance, love. With this guy, he puts his finger on wealth. Think about Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to him. Nicodemus is ashamed, comes to him at night in John 3. Here's what I think is interesting. Go read that chapter. He doesn't even let Nicodemus ask a question. I'm sure he had some questions. When Nicodemus comes, Jesus just confronts him with this. And, and Nicodemus, again, was a big-time guy that had influence, power, was doing so many things right as in coming to Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, you must be, do you remember? Uh, blow it up, right? He's blowing up his paradigm. The guy was like, I wasn't asking for that. I'm doing all this. Just tweak it. You must be born again. Unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom, let alone get in. But then that same chapter, John 3. Did you ever realize that that verse that we love so much, it was actually spoken to Nicodemus. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten son. That whoever, say it, Say it again. Believes. Believes on him. Should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus always blows up the existing paradigm. And so in a sense, this is hard because he demands more than we thought we needed to give. And so that's why as you read the Gospels, you guys, the crowds are getting smaller and smaller and smaller because people are actually starting to hear him And they're starting to realize he's not going to do what we thought we wanted him to do. We can't just use him to take care of our right here, right now. They're hearing him. And if you track with him, we're in Luke 18 now. He is aimed towards Jerusalem. And he keeps raising the bar and just stepping it up and clarifying what it means to be a disciple, to to be a follower. And so people are thinning out. They're like, ooh. Whoa, 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 whoa. You could give him your praise and still hold on to your heart. It's happening all the time. And here, oh, when he saw this young man was sad, the word there in the English really isn't strong enough. 
It does say very sad. Some translations say grieved. That's closer. Do you realize the word in the Greek that they used for this young man was very sad when Jesus put his finger on his stuff? Is the same word that was used in Matthew 26, 38 to describe Jesus in the garden sweating drops of blood and crying out in agony saying, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That's what this young man felt like. Oh, when Jesus puts his finger on the real deal in your life, it is painful. It is overwhelming. This is all I've known. I've trusted in this my whole life. Some of you have been doing whatever you've been doing since you were a kid. I don't know anything else. This is my paradigm. This is my framework. This is, it's painful. It's distressing. It's disturbing. It's overwhelming. And it feels like a death. But, oh, if you're willing to give him your life and die to anything else that you've built your life around, oh, the life that he wants to give you is like nothing you've ever experienced before. And he's not mean. Don't make a mistake here. He's not like, how can I, oh, I'm going to poke him and really hurt him. And here's where I want to reach back over to Mark again. Mark brings in something that's really important. In Mark 10, 21, when he saw this man was sad, it says, looking at him, In his sadness, he loved him and said one thing you lack. He loved him. You realize he loves you too much to let you keep going blissfully, ignorantly, being self-deceived, thinking I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. If you're not, he loves you enough to put his finger right on the real deal and say, put it down. You got to give me that. You got to give me that. Now here, I speculate. This is not in the Bible. But it's also possible, you guys. Think about God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. What? But when he was willing to, what did God do? Stayed his hand and said, don't do it. It's possible that if the guy had said, I'm all in. Oh my goodness, I've known I'm missing something. I've desperately wanted an answer. I thought you would have the answer. Yes, I'll do it. Jesus may have said, don't need to. Being rich is not the problem. Having your life and heart built around it in a way that you're like, I'm not letting go of this. Rich people are already in heaven, you guys. You realize Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, David, Solomon, Lydia, Joseph of Arimathea, and so many others were fabulously wealthy in this world. And they're with our Lord now. Riches do not keep you out of heaven necessarily, but Jesus knows, oh, of everything in this world, kids, grandkids, image, health, career, money is one of the biggest dangers Because it can falsely provide for you a sense of security and you don't think you need God. That's the problem. And you're so busy trusting in it, you won't let go of it and trust in him. That's all he's teaching right here. That money, just like so many other things in this world, pleasure, sex, image, career, work, could become what owns you and rules you.
And Jesus will not share the throne of your heart with someone or something else. He will not come into your life with limited access, right? It's like, yeah, come on in, but, but this is off limits. I'm not changing this at all. This is mine. If that's your attitude right at the front of, the, of considering whether to follow Jesus, then you're still on the outside of the kingdom looking in, my friend. You may know a lot about God and a lot about Jesus and a lot about all kinds of spiritual stuff, but you're not born again. Scary, scary, scary thought. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, it's not men and it's not women, it's not money, that's not my problem. Let me tell you the number one thing that I see that he puts his finger on that we struggle with. It just might be your desire to rule your own life, to have ultimate authority. Because we're created in the image of God, and that's wonderful, our sin nature causes us to take it one step too far. I don't want to just be in the image of God. I want to, well, be God. I want to call the shots. I want to decide what I'm going to do and not do. You know, it's so popular today to say, my body, my body. You know what we actually say? My entire life is mine. I don't want to live under the authority of someone else. That's often, often what he has to put his finger on. I love C.S. Lewis for so many reasons, but one of them is his honesty on this. He investigated Christianity. He was a literature professor at Oxford, and he did not go about this halfway. Again, he sensed he was missing something, and he searched for it diligently, and then one day it dawned on him. He admitted, I'm reading all this other literature, and I've never even examined the Gospels. I've never dug into the Gospels. I should. Guess what he found when he dug in? He found this truth. He found that you cannot just, there's no option of, I'll take Jesus as my savior. I don't want to go to hell, but lordship is optional. I may one day, someday give him my whole life, but we'll see. He was honest enough with the scriptures to realize that's not an option. That's not an option. He's not offering that to anyone. Listen to how he describes it. He describes the struggle this way. In his biography, autobiography, Surprised by Joy, which is what I want some of you to know. You will be so surprised by the joy and peace you'll experience when you give him your life, but I know you're terrified. Oh my goodness, I don't want to die to self. I don't want to. He called his autobiography Surprised by Joy, but here's how he describes that struggle he lived with. He says, what mattered most of all was my deep-seated hatred of authority. My monstrous individualism. Look at me a minute. He's writing that in the 1950s. Oh, my word, you guys. We're in a day right now where the culture is just screaming individualism. You do you. You do you. Doesn't matter what anybody else says or thinks. You decide what you think. And oh, my goodness, do not submit to authority. Don't listen to authority. Don't. You do you. You can do you all the way to hell. That's where that will land you, my friend. Don't hear me saying it's easy, but, oh, the answer is not you do you. So much of what the Bible tells us is never what I would have thought. If you just keep thinking what you think, and you find friends to scream it loud enough along with you, you will never come to faith in Christ. This is radically different. Shockingly different. Give 
your life to him. Let him rule and reign as Lord Jesus. He says, my monstrous individualism, my lawlessness, no word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference. But Christianity placed at the center what then seemed to me a transcendental interferer. Yeah. There was no region, even in the innermost depth of one's soul, nay, there least of all, which one could surround with a barbed wire fence and guard with a notice, no admittance. And that's what I wanted. Some area, however small, of which I could say to all other beings, this is my business and mine alone. I love him for how, I'll I'll read him and I'll think, oh my goodness, I have felt that, but I never could have put in words as well as what you just did. He's not, and I hope you're not sitting there saying, "Woo, he's a mess. He's describing us, you guys. We would love to be totally in control. If that's not an option, we would love to invite someone like Jesus into our life, but barbed wire a few areas off and say, but you're not allowed there. Not there. The Bible doesn't teach that as a possibility. Lord Jesus. And so that's why I want you to be honest and think about right now point number three. You can be offended by Jesus and you can be thrilled by Jesus, but anyone who has an encounter with the real Jesus never walks away indifferent. Eh, whatever. Nobody walked away indifferent. They were either like, oh my goodness, this is good news. Remember the prostitutes and all those people were like, oh, tell us more. They'd never heard a message that gave any hope for them. And the religious people that already had their paradigm and their framework and their system... They didn't say, oh, whatever, keep saying that if you want to. They said, we're going to kill you. We're going to kill you if you don't stop saying this. We're going to kill you. I promise you, we're going to kill you. And they kept trying to trick him and catch him in his words. You're either delighted or you're disturbed. And so I want you to think for a minute what you've experienced regarding Jesus. If you've encountered the real Jesus of the Bible, you're not simply indifferent The real Jesus sent shockwaves through the listening crowd. His message rocked them. It sent shockwaves through the listening crowd for two reasons. Because the message of the gospel and what he was saying demanded more than they thought they needed to give your whole life. But it offered more than they ever thought was possible unconditional, unending, unlimited love, acceptance, forgiveness, adoption into the family of God as a beloved daughter and son. Now direct access to his throne that's a throne of grace where Jesus, your Savior, pleads for you and intercedes for you day and night so that every day, every year, moment by moment, your standing before a holy God is right and cannot change because Jesus doesn't change. This is like no other religion. Nothing even comes close. But nothing else demands as much either. See, religion keeps you in the driver's seat. This is, you know, there used to be a bumper sticker when I was young. Jesus is my co-pilot. Please. 
He won't be your cope. Notice what's going on. I invited Jesus into my life. I still decide where to go. He blows it up. You're in the trunk. You can't even see where you're knocking. Please slow down. I'm feeling sick. Sometimes don't you feel sick in the Christian life? Where are we going? I trust him. I know he's good, but I wish I knew a little more. Isn't that more what it's like? I'm not driving, I'm not looking around, but I'm with someone I know is good and I trust him. But he has control of my life now. I end up places I never meant to be, being called to do things I would never have thought of doing on my own, but oh, what an adventure. Oh, joy. Oh, peace. Oh, sense of purpose. I never wake up thinking, should I be doing something else with my life? And I know I'm a pastor, so I'm not saying... I'm the only one that can have that. You can have that when you know Jesus and he's Lord of your life and you're doing this adventure of letting him lead and he controls and he uses you by his grace and for his glory. And that leads to my final point. Oh, this is shocking. And that's why God makes possible what would be impossible for us without Jesus. I want you to notice in verse 27, he shifts from talking about rich people to talking about all people. All people. Verse 27, look at what he says. What is impossible with men is possible with God. Because it's not just rich people that struggle. Every single human being is a sinner who's hardwired for tell me what to do and I'll do it. And hardwired for, I want to be in control of my life. What is impossible, none of us could be saved, none of us could have saved ourselves, is possible because of God. Quickly, go with me. Let me show you. It's a but God that has any of us saved. Let me show you my favorite but God passage in all the Bible. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. All of us were children of Satan. All of us were slaves to Satan, you guys. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working, the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. So notice how he's putting us all in the same category. If you're still thinking, I'm glad I'm a nice person that hasn't done a lot of things to other people, you're probably not saved. First step towards salvation is when you say, oh, I'm just as big of a sinner as everyone else. I'm whom, whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the not mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Oh, verse four. Say it. Say it louder. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus. Now a verse that you might know. For by grace... Are you saved through what? And that not of yourselves. It is what? Gift of God. Not of works. Lest anyone should boast. Do you know Jesus? 
Has he blown up your paradigm? And have you given him your life? And are you saved by grace? And you tasted the riches of his mercy. If not, step away from what you've been trying to do. And come to Jesus and say, I'm all in. I'm all in. No barbed wire areas. I'm pulling down all the no admittance signs. Take me. Save me. I need a Lord and Savior. He's never turned anyone away who's come like that. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for the free offer of the gospel. Thank you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Oh God, stir us again afresh and anew in just what you did to save us. And then give us excitement to share this message with others that people desperately need to hear. Use us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.